Boy, I love that message. Isn't that what the shepherds were told? When the angels came and said, we've got great news, good news of great joy, which will be for other people. Unto you is born this day in the city of David, what? A Savior who is Christ the Lord. That's our message. That's what it's all about. And Jesus saves. What a glorious truth that is. This gets me all worked up. I don't need that, really, on top of the fact that uh, I really haven't been in this pulpit for a month with all the different technologies. I appreciate it a bunch, but there's something about this wood and this platform and to see your faces, and you're not just looking at my head today. Um, I'm excited. I'm excited to be able to speak to you today. We're, we're still in our Christmas messages, and because of some of the alterations, um, you have two options, okay? Here's the first one. Uh, I've done half of my Christmas messages, and to extend it means we extend 2020 another month. <laughs> I didn't think that was going to go over. <laughs> Next next week we start with 2021, and we've got a new set of things coming your way. So I didn't think you'd go for that extra month thing. So, all right. But uh, but Pamela and I would like to say thank you very much for all the cards and the goodies that you sent our way. I'm doing pretty good so far. It's just, there's a lot of wonderful things you're you're comments to us, your text messages, everything, has been a joy to us. And we thank you so much for the love you share with us and, and all the, uh, the kind words and your prayers especially. Uh, as you know, everybody has been through a tough month, and we still have folks out there wrestling with things, and I'm thankful for the Lord bringing us through uh, our part, and here we are today, and thank you folks for your prayers. Really, really appreciate that. Okay, now, I want you to find Isaiah chapter 8. I don't think that's hard for you, but Isaiah chapter 8. I want you to get there and put a bookmark in it for a minute. Isaiah chapter number 8. And then after you have done that, work your way over to Mark chapter 5. Verse 19. Anthony, I was going to say, you could punch that right in, but he's got a real Bible today. <laughs> he usually has his little tablet, and I could slow him down a little bit with holding the number. But uh, Mark 5, verse 19. I'm going to come back to this, but I want you to hear something as we get started here. In Mark 5, verse 19. It just simply says, and he did not let him, but he said to him, go home to your people and report to them what great things the Lord has done for you and how he has, how he had mercy on you. Go home. Tell your people, your own people. You know, when it comes to evangelism, that's some of the hardest people to work with, isn't it? They know you. You might be very easily uh, able to speak to a total stranger about the things of Christ. 
But family, they watched you grow up. They remember what you did. Right? They've seen you. But folks, who better to share the gospel with than those who can see the difference Christ has made in your life? They can look at it and say, yes, because of Christ you are different. Go to your own people. The text. I'm going to bring you back to this in a few minutes. We have been studying in our Christmas messages, Christmas hymns. We have designated, well, I have, you've listened to it, but we've designated a different hymn for every service and using it as the illustration of the principle being taught. I find it very interesting in so many of our songs. Now, it's not only the Christmas songs we sing, but also the other ones we sing throughout the years. But if you knew their stories, most of them were forged in difficult times. They were testimonies of what Christ has taken them through, the difference he makes. And there is something about that, you know, when you set a, a contrast of darkness in the background so that you can actually see the beauty of the message that's being proclaimed. It's so much brighter, so much clearer when you set it in something harsh and dark and difficult. At this, this time of year, it's my uh, typical pattern during December to read through the book of Isaiah. I just love picking it up then and, and read through the book. And uh, I don't know if I should say fortunately or unfortunately, I had a lot of time in the hospital to do it. Uh, as you lay there, you just read. So I, I read through the book of Isaiah. Um, I'll tell you this, though. One of my doctors, which... He's not here, and he's not one of them that attends here. But um, he was talking to me about what I've been going through and stuff like that. And I was, I confess, I was complaining a little and telling him, you know, this is rough. I can't wait to get to normal and all those kind of things. And he says, why don't you look at it as a time when God is making you deeper? You know what? I thought, hey, wait, that's my job. <laughs> and, and then I thought, ooh, boy, does that convict <laughs> And I, I had to stop and think that way. See, it's still on my mind. And so, it's a time when God makes you deeper. I've had the joy of reading through Isaiah. I recommend it to you. I mean, I recommend you read God's Word anyway. But to dedicate a month just to one book like Isaiah, I do that in December and I love doing it. I also try to read uh, Charles Dickens' Christmas Carol. Uh, during this month, too. And I've got through chapter one so far, and there's still a few days yet to go. So I'm hoping to accomplish that, too. I'm not going to take you to Dickens right now, okay? Uh, but I will take you to Isaiah. You've got the passage in front of you, and it's just before a very familiar passage that might have been on one of your Christmas cards this year, in chapter 9, verse 6. For a child has been born to us, a son has been given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Beautiful message. Let's put it in its context, and you'll see how beautiful it is. Back in chapter 8, I told you to set your bookmark right there. Go to verse number 11 with me as I begin reading through this passage with you. For thus the Lord spoke to me with mighty power and instructed me 
not to walk in the way of this people, saying, you are not to say it is a conspiracy in regard to all that this people call a conspiracy. You are not to fear what they fear or be in dread of it. It is the Lord of hosts whom you should regard as holy, and he shall be your fear, and he shall be your dread. Then he shall become a sanctuary both to both the houses of Israel, a stone to strike and a rock to stumble over, and a snare and a trap for the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Many will stumble over them. Then they will fall and be broken. Even They even will be snared and caught. Okay, so far it sounds like a great Christmas message coming, right? You say, what is he reading? Let me give you a a touch of background as you're about to go into these next verses. Here are a group of people who have been given God's law, who have been given God's prophets, who have been given example after example after example of men who walk by faith. Hebrews 11, you could start the list, right? Enoch and... Noah and Moses and, you know, start going through the list. They've had all this in front of them, but they said, no, we want nothing to do with that. We want to do it our way. And as a result, a nation has been grasping for things that were not in God's design for them, thinking that the substitute was better than the actual source. They satisfied themselves. With a cheap substitute. They went to any other way they could, but they rejected God. And so God is talking to Isaiah here and he says, Now, these people, they set conspiracies. They, they, they stumble over things. They, they, they're caught. They're snared. Bind up the testimony, he says in verse 16. Seal the law among my disciples. Don't, don't let them see it. I will wait for the Lord who is hiding his face from the house of Jacob. I will even look eagerly for him. Behold, I and the children whom the Lord has given to me are for signs and wonders in Israel from the Lord of hosts who dwells on Mount Zion. And Isaiah keeps going. He says, and when they say to you, consult the mediums and the spiritists who whisper and mutter. Here's another substitute. They thought, well, they'd be better, right? Get this medium here, this witch. Let's go to the spiritists. Let's get them to give us a message. We need a message. Here's the fact If they've rejected God's message, what other message could there be? If they've turned their back on God's message, are they going to hear his voice? Are they going to have direction from him? No. So in their frustration, they're saying, well, where do we get it now? It's kind of silly when you think it through. They reject the real source, and then they try to fill that source with something else. So they go to these others. And they're saying, let's go there. Let's go consult them. Let's find out what they have to say. And Isaiah says, should not a people consult their God? Should they consult the dead on behalf of the living? So they say, let's go to the law. Let's go to the testimony. But that does not speak. And if it does not speak, if they do not speak according to this word, it is because they have no dawn and they pass through the land. And look at their the results of this. They're hard-pressed. They're famished. And it will turn out that when they are hungry, they will be enraged and curse their king and their God as they face upward. It's his fault. That astounding to you. I think that's so astounding. 
Then they will look to the earth. As they glance out there, what do they see? Distress and darkness and gloom of anguish, and they are driven away into darkness. That is so bleak, isn't it? That's the route they chose, because they turned away from the Lord. And they walk into a land of darkness. And it's almost like you're standing at the end of chapter number 8 and say, it can't get more depressing than this. We're down at the bottom. There's no place to go. It's nothing. 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 And suddenly chapter 9 starts like the sunrise. That's the way I always picture it. It's like, boom, there's a light on the horizon. And it's growing brighter and growing brighter. And watch the words that start chapter number 9. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In earlier times, he created the land of Zebulon and the land of Naphtali with contempt. And you say, what's that? Those are little communities, tribes that were up around the Sea of Galilee. If you look on your map, you'll find them up there, way up high. It happens to be a territory called Galilee. And it goes, he once treated in earlier times the land of Zebulon and the land of Naphtali with contempt. But later on he shall make it glorious by way of the sea on the other side of the Jordan. Galilee of the Gentiles, those people who walk in darkness, will see a great light. Those who live in a dark land, the light will shine on them. And you shall multiply the nation. You shall increase their gladness. They will be glad in your presence as with the gladness of harvest, as men rejoice when they divide the spoil. For you shall break the yoke of their burden and the staff of their shoulder, the rod of the oppressor as in the battle of Midian. For every boot of the booted warrior will if the battle tumult and cloak will be rolled in blood, will be for burning, fuel for the fire. For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. Who are we speaking about? The Lord Jesus Christ. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of his peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. And the zeal of the Lord will accomplish it. I love it, don't you? How exciting to read these things. The change that's made because of Jesus. There you have a picture in front of you. If you want a full picture. What life looks like when you reject the Lord. What life looks like when the Lord is on his throne. We as believers are quick to make that contrast, aren't we? And, and to declare. I mean, we put it on our plaques. We put it on signs and, and some businesses will put it on their little digital signs that are out front in their building. Or, or you'll make a craft project out of uh, popsicle sticks and you'll put on it things like, Jesus is the reason for the season. Actually, he's much more than that, isn't he? We know that his coming was because of our sin. Take, take the world and, and let it follow its own ideas 
of what is right and what is wrong and who is to blame. And what you get is the social, political, and spiritual chaos that we're actually witnessing today, aren't we? It will happen every single time when the world goes its own route to try to solve the things that it cannot solve. I could sum up our world's problems, our country's problems, in one word. And I'm not being silly with you or anything else. It's called sin. I'm not being cute. I'm just showing what Scripture says. Sin destroys everything. Everything is... You can't mix sin into any recipe and come up with something that tastes good. You can't. When man attempts to solve sin issues with laws, mandates, programs, he will come up short every single time, and it will be worse than it was in the first place. What is needed is someone who is above sin. Someone who is without sin. Someone willing to come down and reach down to this weary, wicked world and give them forgiveness and hope. That thing they are lacking. We need somebody else to do that. And we know that's the essence of the gospel message, don't we? Jesus came to seek and to save that which was lost. Isaiah was sent to the Jews. A group of people who ought to have known better. They had had hundreds and hundreds of years to have learned the right way. They had prophets to help keep them in line. And yet, you know the Old Testament story. You've read it and you've, you've said it. Maybe you've even said, okay, I'm going to do it again this year. January the 1st, you're going to start. Leviticus will be there pretty soon. And then what do you do? Say, oh. But you know what? If you make it through Leviticus, you're eventually going to hit the historical section. And you're going to sit there every single day saying, what is wrong with these people? They had all this set before them. And yet they continually rebelled against him. They continually earn the consequences for their sin. It was a bleak day in Isaiah chapter 8. You just heard it. It was a bleak day when they passed through the land hard-pressed, it said, and famished. And it would turn out that when they are hungry, they will be enraged. And rather than looking at themselves in the mirror, they curse their king and their God as they face upward. They look to the earth. There's no hope there either. Distress, darkness, gloom of anguish, and they're driven away into darkness. You know, you may say, but Pastor, I really don't like this theme. God writes it in black and white, doesn't he? It's there. What we can point the finger at for them, we've got four fingers coming back at us. It's, it's the way life is down here on this earth. I've been trying to illustrate these principles so that we read in God's Word with Christian hymns that um, illustrate. Maybe the most beautiful of all of them, I don't know. I, I tend to think a lot of them are the most beautiful. Uh, but uh, maybe the most solemn, too, is that song we sang a little bit earlier, O Holy Night. 
challenging. It's beautiful. It's challenging, probably for, especially for the pianist. I have no idea what the key signature is, what their numbers are, and how to do that directing, because it's got all kinds of interesting patterns to it. But I want to take you to the history of that song for a few minutes. Oh, Holy Night. The lyrics were written as a French poem. I'm not going to pronounce it in French, but the English equivalent was Midnight, Christians! So, interesting. This man uh, wrote it, uh, his name, last name was Kapu, I believe. Uh, Adolf Adam composed the tune, 1847. Did you know it was around that long? 1847. And then it was translated into English later. You heard the words because you sang it, but let me read them to you as I have them here on this page. O holy night, the stars are brightly shining. It is the night of our dear Savior's birth. Long lay the world in sin and error pining till he appeared and the soul felt its worth. A thrill of hope, the weary world rejoices for yonder breaks a new and glorious morn. That's Isaiah chapter 9, right? It's like right there. Fall on your knees. Oh, hear the angel voices. Oh, night divine. Oh, night when Christ was born. Oh, night divine. Oh, night. Oh, night divine. Led by the light of faith, serenely beaming. With glowing hearts by his cradle we stand. So led by light of a star sweetly gleaming, here comes the wise men from Orient land. The king of kings lay thus in lowly manger, in all our trials, born to be our friend. He knows our need, to our weakness is no stranger. Behold your king, before him lowly bend. Behold your king, before him lowly bend. Truly he taught us to love one another. His law is love, and his gospel is peace. Chains shall he break, for the slave is our brother. And in his name all oppression shall cease. Sweet hymns of joy and grateful chorus raise we. Let all within us praise his holy name. Christ is the Lord. I'll praise his name forever. His power and his glory evermore proclaim. His power and glory evermore proclaim. Now that the tune's stuck in your head, take a look at the time when this song was written. 1847. So, okay, what, what was going on there? Adolf Adams was near the end of his 44th year. His birthday was coming up. He's only going to live a handful of years more. He'll live to be 52. He lived in France. When he was young, he wanted to be a composer like his father. His father didn't want him to be a composer. His father said, it's better if you study law. How many times is that in the history stories? That the father, no, don't go into music, don't go into the church, just go into law. Anyway, that's what his father wanted him to do. So Adam went and studied to play the piano secretly. And he learned it and so impressed his father with his piano playing, that he was allowed to go and study at the conservatory. That's where his father taught. But he had to make a promise. The promise was that he would only have music to enjoy and not make a living by it. 
guess what he was known for? Writing operas, uh, ballet, compositions, and later teaching in that same conservatory. Well, back in the age of 20, for Adam here, he was writing songs for the Paris vaudeville houses. He was playing the timpani for an orchestra in town. He learned the organ. He started to write musical scores for theaters. After a few big hits, he thought, well, I've made it. So he invested his money and borrowed heavily to open a fourth opera house in Paris. And it opened the same year that he wrote the tune to O Holy Night. Yet, it was a tough year. It was difficult to succeed for any business in France that year. Within a year, the opera house actually closed because of massive debts. In France and all the way through Europe, there was another revolution starting to take place. You're mindful of the one in the 1700s. And that's the one that we read about in Dickens, I bring him up again, Dickens' uh, Tale of Two Cities. Well, this was in the 1800s now. And it went far beyond the boundaries of France. It, it highlighted the bleakness of the average person trying to survive. Let me give you a picture of this. This is what the historians wrote to describe the plight of the poor in the middle 1800s. Many unskilled laborers toiled from 12 to 15 hours per day when they had work. They were living in squalid, disease-ridden slums. Urban workers had no choice but to spend half of their income on food, which consisted mostly of bread and potatoes. As a result of harvest failures, food prices soared, and the demand for manufactured goods decreased, causing an increase in unemployment. Rural population growth had led to food storages or shortages, land pressure and migration from within and from Europe. Peasant discontent in the 1840s grew to intensities. There, the present occupation of lost communal lands increased in many areas. Those convicted of wood theft amounted to 185,000 cases in one year. In the year 1845 and 1846, a potato blight caused a substantial crisis in northern Europe, encouraging the raiding of potato stocks in 1847. The effect of the blight was most severely manifested in the Great Irish Famine. You've heard of that before. It, was, it caused famine-like conditions in the Scottish Highlands and throughout all the continent of Europe, a harvest of rye in the Rhineland was 20% of previous levels. That hurts, doesn't it? Ouch. The Czech potato harvest was reduced by half. These reduced harvests were accomplished, were accompanied by steep rises in prices. The cost of wheat more than doubled in France and Italy. There were 400 French food riots during one year while the German socio-economic protest increased from 28 in 1830 to 103 in 1840 to 1847. Central to long-term peasant grievances were the loss of communal lands, forest restrictions, such as the French Forest Code of 1827, and remaining feudal structures. And a poem was written. 
set on that kind of a backdrop, a poem was written and music was set to it. Long lay the world in sin and error pining till he appeared and the soul felt its worth. A thrill of hope, the weary world rejoices. For yonder breaks a new and glorious morn. And then truly taught us to love one another. His love is law, or his law is love, and his gospel is peace. Chains shall he break, for the slave is our brother, and in his name all oppression shall cease. Can you hear the plea from a voice in the midst of chaos? in the midst of pain and distress and darkness, and he yells out as if it were on the last line, Christ is the Lord! Christ is the Lord! How often we forget that in the midst of difficult times. Christ is the Lord. You know what's very interesting in all this? When the song was made public, it was met with the strongest disapproval from the church authorities. One fresh French bishop derided the song for its lack of musical taste and total absence of the spirit of religion. Isn't that amazing? That stuns me. But is that so hard to understand in a world? I think we're getting closer to that every single day where the organized church is spurning the truth walking away from what is right and substituting with all these things that will not work, folks. It's no different than Isaiah's day. It's no different in the middle of the 1800s. I think we're on it. Dark and dismal days. The world is, is under a load of sin. There is only one Savior. That it means there's one solution. One. And the church in that day, total absence of the spirit of religion. That's the nature of the critic, folks. A world in chaos, people hurting, hardly surviving. What shall we say is its cause? Is it greed? Let's blame business. Is it indifference? Let's blame our political leaders. Is it cruelty? Is it bondage? Is it injustice? How many times do we hear these words? When the reality is, it's sin. It is sin. A message is given that speaks of what we are told to do as believers. As our relationship to the rest of this world, we are to proclaim Christ. Right? Proclaim Christ. Represent Christ. And the purpose of his coming to a world that is really pining under sin. <laughs> Let the church officials disapprove it. Let them deride it. Let them go seeking wherever they want. But let's not change the message. Let's declare it as it is. The message of Christ is not always welcomed by those who are in the dark. Isaiah could have told you that. When he started into the book, Isaiah chapter 6. You know that passage where he sees the, whole, the Lord in his temple high lifted up and angels yelling, holy, holy, holy. You remember that passage in Isaiah 6? Beautiful. Love that passage. And then it gets down to the Lord says, well, who will go for us? And Isaiah says, pick me. I'm oh, sorry. Uh, 
I'll go, I'll go. And God says, okay, I'm going to send you. And this is what he told him. In Isaiah 6, verse 9, go and tell these people, keep on listening, but do not perceive. Keep on looking, but do not understand. Render the hearts of this people insensitive. Let their ears be dull, their eyes dim. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their heart, and return and be healed. You say, what kind of message is this? I thought God wanted everybody to come back. He wanted them back on his terms, not on theirs. They weren't going to listen. He says, Isaiah, you've got a tough road. This is your ministry. Dense people. Deaf people. Stubborn people. They know the truth, but they won't listen to you, Isaiah. But God never said, Isaiah, change your message. It was still the same message. When you get to chapter 53, you know that chapter. Isaiah 53, what's the very first thing brought up? Who's going to believe this message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot, like a root out of a parched ground. He had no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him. Nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. He was despised and forsaken of men. He was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And like one from whom men hide their face. He was despised and we did not esteem him. Surely our griefs he himself bore. Our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken and smitten of God. He deserved it. He was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening of our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging we are healed. And all of us, like sheep, we've gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. He was oppressed. And he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, like sheep that is silent before its shearers, he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation, who knew? Who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living for the transgression of my people to whom the stroke was due? His grave was assigned with wicked men. Yeah, he was with a rich man in his death because he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. But the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. If he would render himself as a guilt offering, he will see his offspring. He will prolong his days, and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hands. As a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied by his knowledge The righteous one, my servant, will justify the many. He will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will allot him a portion with the great. He will divide the booty with the strong, because he poured out himself to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he himself bore the sin of many and interceded for the transgressor. Is there any way you can hear those words and not understand it's about Jesus? And what he did for us on the cross. Even today, 
the Jewish rabbis refused to let their people read this chapter. Hmm. I am so thankful that the Lord, being despised and derided as he was, did not change his mind about dying for me. I am so thankful that he could see the bleakness and the impossibility of my soul's remedy. And he could meet that need and give me something far greater than a better meal or a larger home or a prosperous job. All those temporary things this world fights for. He gave me eternal life in his name. Praise the Lord for that. I take you back to Mark chapter 5. You say, why, why is this passage here? If you remember this chapter, there was a man who was demon-possessed. And Jesus came to that side of the lake, got out of the boat, and that man met him. That man lived in the tombs. That man was so wild, they chained him and the chains would not hold. He was in shackles, he was in chains, and he'd tear them all apart. No one was able to subdue him. Constantly, day and night, he screamed among the tombs and in the mountains. And, and he'd take stones and slice himself up with them. You want to talk about a soul in misery? He saw Jesus. He ran down and bowed down before him. That demon within him just shouted, What business do we have to do with each other, Jesus, the Son of the Most High God? I implore you by God, do not torment me. Jesus says, Come out of that man. What is your name? He says, My name is Legion, for we are many. You know what happened to the demons. Most of the time when we tell the story, we give a lot of account on what happened to the demons. They end up in a herd of pigs and down the hill and into water, right? Let's talk about the man that was just set free. The man who had no hope. No hope. No one to help him till Jesus came. After all the pigs have headed to the water and were gone, the people came back to find Jesus. And they found a man who once was demon-possessed, sitting. He was in his right mind. They couldn't believe what they saw. Matter of fact, they were scared to death of it. And they told Jesus, please leave. Please leave. Jesus got up and got into the boat. That demon-possessed man came. He said, I want to go with you. I want to go where you're going. I want to be with you. Wouldn't you love to be with Jesus? I see his heart. I mean, what did Jesus just do for me? He says, just let me go with you. I just want to be with you. And Jesus said, no. What? No. No. I want you to go to your people. I want you to go and tell them 
what great things the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on your soul. This demon-possessed man had a testimony, didn't he? And it wasn't meant to be kept quiet. I've been setting before you a very bleak picture, yes, in several different settings. Isaiah's day, our day, 1847. A man, demon-possessed. They all have something in common in this way. The difference Jesus makes when he comes on the scene. The change from absolutely despair to hope and peace and life, forgiveness, joy. Folks, how much do you have in Jesus? Doesn't Scripture say in Him we have every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies in Christ Jesus? Guess what? These mouths need to go to people we know. If we follow what Jesus just told this man, go and tell your people. Go and tell your people. If anybody could see a difference Jesus has made in your life, it would be somebody who grew up with you. I know that's the one you probably fear the most talking to. But they need to hear it. They need to hear it. You've got a message. And this world needs it. And we can't probably go out, our Zoom doesn't, well, it goes somewhere. It goes anywhere that somebody wants to be on the other side. But we're not broadcast on every single news station in this world. We're not being heard by every single person. And God didn't call us necessarily to do that. But he said, go to the ones you know. Let's start there. Let's start there with a message that we know is so true. We can say, fall on your knees. Hear the angel voices. We can say we're led by the light of faith serenely beaming. We can, we can talk about wise men. We can talk about those who bow before him. But I love this phrase. He knows our need. And to our weakness he is no stranger. Behold your king. Before him lowly bend. There's a message for us all right there, isn't there? I said it before your heart right now. I let you take it from here. Who do you need to talk to? Who do you need to share this with? I'll let the Lord apply it. Heavenly Father, what a glorious thing you've done for us. That we, we, should be loved by you. We who were yet sinners are the ones you died for, that we might be made the righteousness of God in you. Oh, what an amazing thing you have done. Amazing thing you have done. And in the quietness of this room, and for our folks that are listening to us as well over the internet, we all shout out with a heart so full Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord for what you have done. May we not contain our praise 
to the select audience that knows it too. But may we take it to those who need to hear it. There is a world out there pining under sin and error. And we have the message because we know Christ. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for the remembrance of the day you were born. Thank you for giving us opportunity to reflect upon it more fully. And I pray that your words have its impact in our heart. Whatever changes you seek to make, Lord, whatever direction you seek to lead us in, write it with permanent ink so we do not see it fade, but we follow through and do what you call us to do. Thank you for being with us. Emmanuel, God with us. Praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.